You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Julie Rose is the recipient of the Penn Medallion for Translation and the New South Wales Premier's Translation Prize. She's translated Alexandra Dumas' The Knights of Maison Rouge and Racine's Phaedra. Her newest translation is Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Thank you for joining me, Julie. It's a pleasure. Julie, let's talk a little bit about um, the, this book itself first, just, just to kind of establish some of, some of the uh, parameters. Uh, Victor Hugo... Um, he was born in 1803, This was, and he lived in a time of incredible political change. And he wrote this book in exile, though, didn't he? Yes, he, um, the exile was actually originally self-imposed. Uh, he, he saw the chop coming. Um, he'd, he'd really alienated the powers that be by the time he was writing this in 1862. In fact, in the 1840s and 50s, he'd started off as a royalist, and um, then he'd kind of seen through that and become very much a, a man of the people, but also a political realist. He wasn't just a man of the people. He was able to operate in the salons, and he was quite famous as a poet who'd been in the royal court. But um, when uh, Napoleon the Third, as he uh, finally named himself, came to power, it was really time for Hugo to move on. So he'd already imposed exile on himself, first of all in Belgium and then in the Channel Islands in the 1850s when he started writing the draft of Les Miserables. At first it was called Les Misères, but, you know, miseries, uh, but then it turned into Les Miserables. So he was actually writing it from a fair distance from his beloved Paris. I think he could see the coastline when the mists cleared. Um, but he was remembering Paris, I like to think, in, in very vivid detail and remembering all the political turmoil, um, as you say, that he was born into. By the time he was born, the revolution was uh, fairly much long gone, but the, the legacy of the revolution lived on. Napoleon had come to power, first of all, as a people's hero, and then, of course, he'd taken over and become an autocrat and an emperor, had himself crowned. And so this was the very turbulent world in which Hugo was a young man, where Napoleon, of course, finally lost the Battle of Waterloo against the British and was... uh, very much in disgrace, and the and French society was divided between those loyal to Napoleon and those who thought he'd been a disaster. And I think Hugo, as you can read in Les Miserables, wavered between those two poles for a lot of his life, and he has a lot of very, very interesting things to say about the French Revolution, about revolution as a whole, and about... Great people like Napoleon, who are, in fact, geniuses, but can do a lot of damage as well. One of the things that you mentioned um, that I find really interesting is he had this uh, a unique ability to embrace opposing ideas, to, to, to talk about both sides yes. of the picture with, with equal conviction, didn't he? Absolutely. And this is where I say um, his personal history is interesting, because... Um, 
as a young man, his father had been a general, and and obviously he'd been in uh, Napoleon's army, and uh, but his mother was a royalist, so he he sort of grew up schizophrenic, if you like. Um, they his parents had separated, and uh, you know the general was was seen as the bad guy in the household but I think Hugo's attraction to his father and his father's ideals was very strong as well as his loyalty to his mother and her royalist ideals so he had those two things going inside him from the very beginning um, and then when he grew up he was a prodigy he, he wrote amazingly talented poetry from um, a very early age and uh, he wanted to be a success he was quite ambitious and um, he he became a courtier, and and you know he was very much a royalist. But at the same time, I think he's such a, an incredibly brilliant man. Um, he must have always had a lot of understanding of how people worked and and what was going on in French society. So um, eventually, he swung round to the opposite pole and became quite a champion of the people, but also someone who could see the limitations of that as well. I think the thing to remember about Hugo is that, a bit like Chekhov in a completely different mode, he wasn't fooled by anybody. I think he could see through absolutely everybody and every political position on the spectrum, and but with a, with a generosity as well. He could see what was going for people. Um, you can feel that in the book, that... Uh, low life or high life, you know, he can see both sides of a person, um, the, the good qualities and the bad. And I think that that was very much the way he stood politically because, of course, though he was a champion of the people in this novel, he was also quite capable of, of a certain amount of political treachery and, uh, you know, of, of, of more or less opposing the insurgents um, in 1858, uh, 1848, sorry, um, when, when you know, one of the, the uh, revolutions was on. You had the 1832 insurgency that the novel deals with, and then you had the 1848 revolution, which is mentioned in the novel but not treated there. Uh, so he was able to take different stances. I think he was very flexible, we'd say, these days. <laughs> One thing that strikes me uh, about this novel is in its vision of the complicated dealings of humanity from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, I think that that kind of epic scope is what makes it still really relevant and seem very modern when we read it today. I'm glad you say that, Rick, because um, I felt that it was incredibly modern in, in exactly the way you described, that um, it was quite breathtaking how he was actually dealing with you know, in great detail, dealing with a very specific situation, and yet uh, it struck a chord with me and obviously with you and hopefully, you know, all the readers who are still so passionate about Les Miserables, the, the novel, the music, or whatever. Um, it really strikes a chord that um, maybe those insights that we've just been describing, but also that the freshness of the response to what's happening on the political stage as well as on the, the personal stage with, with different characters. And what struck me as I translated it, and I have to confess, I'd never read the novel before. Um, you and probably most people I know grew up with it, you know, and I have friends who say it was, it's their favourite novel since they were 10 or something. I'd read all the Russian novels when I was... <laughs> and I just didn't read Hugo. I have no idea why not. Um, 
it can be a little daunting in its size, but it, that's that's not the reason. It's just one of those you know things. There are plenty of classics I still haven't read, and in a sense that was great because I was desperate to know how it all turned out. <laughs> I did three drafts in three years, but I, not really knowing exactly how things work because obviously the musical and the, the different film versions uh, are not exactly true to the novel. Um, that kept me going and got me over the line the first time because I was really keen to find out exactly what happened. But one of the other things that kept me going was, um, you know, the, the the pertinence to today's political situation, not only in the third world where there are people living the, you know, squalid life that is described here and dealing with it in the criminal and other ways that Hugo um, does so, so very well. Um, but within cities like Paris itself, uh, you'll probably remember at the end of 2005, for instance, there were riots in Paris, lots of burning cars and... Uh, you know, the cobblestones being chucked as usual. And uh, one of the places where there was a riot was Montfermeil, which, of course, is famous in the novel as the scene of the Greasy Spoon Hotel that the um, dreaded scenarios keep. Um, and I thought, well, you know, how perfect. <laughs> that is That is still a place that means something in a way that Hugo would have identified with very, very closely. Um, and the reasons for the riots in Paris, I mean, you could be quite cynical about them and a lot of things are now orchestrated by television and so on. But nonetheless, there are people in Paris living in the Cité, on the outskirts and even living within Paris. I think around about the same time or perhaps a bit earlier uh, when I was in the middle of the translation, that I think there were two fires right in the centre of Paris, one in the first arrondissement, so, you know, not far from the Opera House, not far from the Seine, where a number of people died when some dreadful flea pit hotel burnt down, revealing that there were people living in incredible squalor, whole families in, you know, one tiny, nasty little room in the, in the middle of Paris, one of the world's most beautiful cities. And so um, I was struck by by the relevance of that politically to our own day, but also the incredible freshness of Hugo's prose. I mean, there are things that, to me, uh, you know, there are paragraphs that go on for pages almost, but there are also these wonderful staccato, strong lines that have all the uh, sharpness and elegance that we associate with contemporary works and not something written in 1862. So both of those aspects of freshness were uh, quite striking to me as I was working on it. Well, one thing that, that uh, strikes me too, um, we're used to this kind of novel, and, and you mentioned this, um, mm. that about uh, novels like Henry James and, you know, his, his many successors up to Philip Roth that are mm. very smooth and written in a pretty linear fashion. And when you encounter something like Les Miserables, you think, wow, this is like a big experimental novel. And, and you realize that when novels were first being written, they were experiments. There was no map. There was no yes. set way to do things. And, and this kind of kitchen sink approach that, that uh, he used was really... Um, the, the way to do things, and now it seems like a it, it seems like a fabulously inventive way to to tell a story. Rick, you're a man after my own heart. I, mean, I think you've mentioned something quite critical, which was missed at the day when when Les Misérables was published in France in 18. 18- 
1862, people like Flaubert and Baudelaire. Now, Baudelaire was actually a protégé of Hugo's. Baudelaire is a slightly more interesting case because I think he recognized Hugo's supremacy, if you like, um, in a way that other contemporary youngsters, they were younger than Hugo then. Hugo was already the great man of French literature by the time Baudelaire and Flaubert really came to prominence. But people like Flaubert, and Flaubert was completely dismissive of Les Miserables and saw it as a great big shapeless thing. And um, he was a little bit contemptuous as though it was a bit old hat and, and he, Flaubert, was was the experimental guy. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, the thing that's incredible about this is that there's a, a linear novel, a story, a narrative, as we know, the, the very famous story of Jean Valjean and Javert and so on, Cosette, and there are, as you say, all these wonderful experimental things uh, in, a, in a form that I don't uh, know anyone else was, was remotely approaching at the time, uh, where you've got these wonderful discursive bits, you've got so many different types, uh, so many transitions from narrative to an expose on this or that, you know, it might be slang, it might be social ills, um, Waterloo, which I love. That's a section most people say, oh, you know, that's got very little to do with it. I see the whole thing as being about a series of battlefields, and that's that's one that changed the course of the century. So you've got all these completely different transitions. Suddenly Hugo the orator comes in, then Hugo the politician, then Hugo the, the storyteller. You've got all these different Hugos, these quite different voices, which he has somehow managed to bring together in a way that, for me, is perfectly coherent. Um, and I think that's, um, as you say, that, that makes it one of the great experimental novels of modernity. I, I think, you know, it's not realism. It's not uh, modernist realism at all. It's, it's a romantic tradition that he's both adhering to and, and in a way, establishing, initiating. Um, and yet he's managed to get all these other quite different voices and styles and genres in there in a way that hangs together and somehow makes sense for over, you know, about 1,500 pages. It's quite quite a, a feat. You describe this book as an ocean of a book, and you mentioned that Hugo mm. himself loved Paris and the ocean, and I think mm. that's a really good apt description. I thought it was perfect when I, I, I finally really got to see Hugo. You know, just one thing you do when you're translating is you become very close to the person you're translating, even if they're dead. You know? And um, I, I had a picture of him as I was sort of, you know, traipsing around the, the Parramatta River here in Sydney with my dog Poppy. I really had a strong sense of Hugo walking for miles along the shore and um, Guernsey, originally Jersey and then Guernsey with, with one of his beloved dogs. And just the way he... Um, uh, I think you see it in his artworks as well. I got very interested in his artworks while I was doing this. I always have been because I think he was a fabulous artist. Uh, some of the, the black and white pen, you know, the washes, the drawings with wash uh, are just wonderful. And I just saw this man who um, absolutely loved the sea. And, and what is the sea? The sea is chaos. Um, it's 
it's life, it's salt, it's all these sort of wonderful tangy things that sort of wash in and take away. And somehow um, that seemed perfect as a metaphor for his novel, which, which really is about everything in that oceanic way, you know, sort of all these things that wash up and that were sort of washing up metaphorically for him on his little island as he thought back to Paris, which um, I think I quote in the preface that uh, he, he said he had two great affairs in his life. One was Paris and one was the sea. And and I, I just felt both of those things are so present in the, in the novel. The, the Paris, which is the, you know, the, the great metropolis by the time he's writing the... It's it's not as great a metropolis as London in size, but for him it it was all life teeming, you know, all these different social types and setups, mm-hmm. um, and and the ocean, which um, is, is such a metaphor for all life. We 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 come from the ocean originally, you know, in, in Hugo's view, and I think the ocean and the stars are, are, are both very present in the novel, and the connections between the two, and the sense of life sort of boiling away, roiling and toiling like the sea, uh, flecks of foam, you know, scintillation, all these sort of wonderful metaphors you can think of um, were very present to me when I was translating it, and I'm sure to Hugo when he was writing it. Now, I have to ask, did he really write it standing up? Yes, apparently he did. Now, I got this detail from... Graham Robb's wonderful biography of Hugo, um, which I only read towards the end of the third draft when I was, you know, winding down or winding up or whatever it was I was doing. And um, Graham Robb, uh, he's written quite a, a number of biographies, and the one on Hugo is fabulous, and it had so many delicious details. Of course, I couldn't get all that many into a preface without going into too much detail, but I thought that was fabulous, especially as, you know, I was really suffering for a while. I, I thought I was getting RSI and just the, just the hours that were required to sort of, for me to sit at the computer and hammer away. And um, when I learnt that he, he wrote standing up in the top room of the house, Oatfield House in Guernsey, where um, apparently he had this wonderful nook that had lots of glass windows, so he could actually stare at the sea and he, he angled things so that he had mirrors. He could write and he would he had this sort of ledge on which he had his sheaves of paper. And of course he wrote with a fountain pen. And um, he could he, he had the angle uh, the mirrors angled in such a way that he could both write and see the sea while he was writing without having to sort of stare out the window. Um, which I thought was incredible, you know, and uh, he wrote standing up, and God knows how he managed it all, because Les Miserables is, you know, 1,500 pages in the French edition, and it's only one of all those fabulous and incredibly long novels he wrote. And at the same time, he painted all those wonderful artworks and uh, and still had time to have fun with the maid and all the um, all the, the women of Paris that he seduced when he was in town and... And his long-standing girlfriend, Juliette Drouault, who um, followed him wherever he went once they started their affair. And he was a family man. He loved his wife. He had children he adored. Um, though I think they were fairly troubled and perhaps lived a little bit too much in his shadow. But, um, you know, he had time for all these things, including when, by the time he got to Guernsey, uh, he used to have... 
I can't remember if it was one day a week or one day a fortnight where he'd invite all the poor kids he knew in the in the village to come and be fed and have fun and play with his kids. So he really was a, a force of nature. And uh, he believed very much in hygiene. He believed in walking, as we know, with his dog for hours at a time. He believed in swimming in the ocean. I think he took all his clothes off and dived into the ocean whenever he felt like it. And he very much believed in not sitting down to work because he thought that was bad for posture. So <laughs> he had it all worked out well before ergonomics became fashionable. Tell me a little bit about the history of the translation of, of Les Miserables because looking at your book and, and speaking with you about it, it seems kind of, uh, to me, insane that anybody would want to... Uh, just decide to edit it on the fly while they were trying to translate it. <laughs> well, that that is a very interesting point. And I think we have to remember a couple of things. One is that uh, the very first tra- uh, translation into English of Les Miserables occurred almost at the same time, was published almost at the same time as the original French. And this, of course, was only possible with such a long term. Um, because the translator Charles Wilbur was a friend of Hugo's, at least until the translation came out. And then, of course, Hugo wasn't all that happy and muttered things about translation being betrayal because he felt that Wilbur had left out a lot of things, hadn't tackled anything that he found a bit unpleasant or a bit rude or a bit rough. Um, And so... I think what happened was, uh, yes, before that he had passed the manuscript to Wilbur, so Wilbur was able to translate it almost as fast as Hugo was writing it. And his his translation came out in 1862. Uh, but the thing we need to remember about that, Charles Wilbur was British. He was publishing in the very early Victorian period uh, when... I think basically two things. We need to remember that that was a very straight-laced time in, in England, even even if we look back and see a great deal of hypocrisy, sexual and moral hypocrisy in the Victorian age. Charles Wilbur was a Victorian. And I think, uh, you know, that England was so much more straight-laced and, and correct in inverted commas than, than France ever was, than France ever would be. And so he was writing for, uh, or translating rather, for an English audience who, you know, were were undergoing that kind of slightly more straight-laced period than than, uh, previously. In the 18th century, you get all sorts of wonderful, uh, colourful, almost blue novels, you know. But by the time uh, 1862 swung around, uh, the mood was much grimmer in London and, and much more politically correct, in a sense, I guess we could say. So um, I can't blame Charles Wilbur for that. But on the other hand, uh, that, that, by the way, is the Everyman's Library edition. So it's one of the two most popular translations. There's the Charles Wilbur from 1862, which is, as I say, rather circumscribed in a sense um, because of the times and the place that Wilbur was translating in and for. And then um, you've got quite a number of translations, including unofficial translations I discovered on the web, hundreds of those, but um, maybe about five or six uh, translations that are fairly well-known. But of those, Charles Wilbur's in 1862, and then 
Norman Kenny, which is the Penguin Classics edition, uh, which I think originally came out in about 18, uh, 1974. Correct me if I'm wrong. It might be 79. I think it was 74. Anyway, Norman Kenny... Um, uh, this is the one that most people know. They either know the Everyman's or the classic, and the, the classic keeps being re-edited and republished. And I think people need to know. Um, I was amazed when I read Norman Kenny's preface at the sort of contempt that Kenny felt in the 1970s um, for a man that he says couldn't always write that well, <laughs> which is... Not actually my experience of, of reading Hugo, but um, by then it had become a, a kind of cliche. And, and Kenny is quite upfront about how he felt perfectly justified in just chopping things out because they were details and they weren't necessary and um, they interrupted the flow of the narrative. So if he felt that you needed to read them at all, he decided he'd stick them at the back in an appendix. So you get the sewer in the back, you get the stuff about slang in the back and, and so on. Um, what I did when I, when I accepted the job, I, I, when I first sat down to it, I, I felt absolutely overwhelmed by the weight of the novel. I mean, it is such a monument. Not, not only is it enormous, it's also such a precious piece of French patrimoine that I felt, you know, the, the weight of it every time I sat down at my computer, even if I was only hammering out a paragraph a day at one stage when it got terribly dense. But what I thought I'd do, um, not only the weight of the novel, but the weight of the translations that had gone before, and particularly the Everyman's and the Penguin Classics. So what I did the first draft, I had uh, Hugo in front of me in the Pleiad edition, which is the revered, uh, you know, complete edition in the French and to one side I had Charles Wilbur and I kind of was going through and seeing what he'd done with various things and in a sense Wilbur is much more faithful to the Hugo than Norman Kenny is. He he doesn't banish anything to appendices at the back and he does leave in a lot of the detail, not all, and of course if there's a rude metaphor that goes. Um, and he has a lot of trouble with words like shit and, and all the stuff that's in the sewer. So a lot of it's being cleaned up, but not nearly as much as the Kenny, which I kind of, I didn't read it all, but I read most of it by the time I got to the third draft. Uh, the second draft was for me and Hugo alone. That was me wrestling only with Hugo. But by the third draft, I thought, I'll just see what Kenny's done as well. And I was going through this, and I got increasingly incensed, I have to say, and I'm sorry if that offends anyone who loves the Penguin Classics edition, but I felt increasingly incensed that this man had the gall to just chop out so many things and to clean up things like mixed metaphors, which I know, um, as, as you will know from reading it, from time to time Hugo can get quite wild. You know, there's this quite insane stuff happening from time to time insane in a wonderful sense where he's mixed all sorts of metaphors and you have this tremendous sense of like a wave crashing over you and uh, Kenny of course finds that intolerable that's bad writing so there are no mixed metaphors in Kenny and I just think well you know that's so completely um, Hugo what's the point and I guess that is the point of doing another translation into English um, and I'll say there also that when uh, Charles Wilbur's write, uh, translating in 1862, um, 
a certain English is correct, uh, a certain sense of what is literary is very much sort of at play in that translation. Um, but I think that English has changed so much more than French has in the 150 years or so since then. Mm. Um, English has changed so much that this is one of the reasons that uh, Random House's Modern Library is doing retranslations, and I think it's one of the most important publishing projects in the world at the moment is to freshen all translations, but particularly ones from French into English, um, where you and I both have a sense of how modern Hugo is, and even in the 1970s translation, you don't although that is very readable, you don't necessarily get a sense of the freshness um, of Hugo's prose. And I think if you're doing a fake 19th century translation, which, which Kenny is at, at, uh, for, for a large part of his translation, then you're not getting a sense of that freshness. And, and I was very conscious of trying to reproduce that in as much fidelity to the Hugo as possible because that felt like the most modern thing to be doing. You say you spent three years of of your life doing this. (laughs) That's a long time to to be immersed in somebody else's work. Could you talk about how the world changed a lot in those three years, I'm guessing, and how you changed and, and how that changed the way you perceived the book and the translation as you went through it? Yes. At first, as I say, um, and I'm, I'm confessing on air here, um, that I never had read it before, and in a way, it was an experiment for me just sort of seeing what this book was about, why people loved it so much, why all those characters had entered the language's proper names, you know, and that even people who'd never read it knew who Cosette was and and, uh, and so on. And... Um, God, I feel like I was so young when I went through it the first time. <laughs> I really feel, I really did go grey while I was doing it. <laughs> it was just, it is so, uh, not just so long, you know, uh, but it's so involved. And you, you get, I, I think I said at one stage that I really did feel like I was channeling Hugo. You know, you, you get, you, you couldn't possibly do that work unless you were one over. You know, you couldn't. I have to admire Norman Kennedy since he did apparently feel quite hostile a lot of the time to Hugo. I don't know how he managed to do it at all because for me, um, I couldn't have sustained it if I didn't decide to be Hugo. You know, I was very worried about losing my hair and becoming fat, which Hugo did, you know, uh, by the time he was writing it because um, I just ended up identifying so much with the narrator and that narrative voice. And I think you sort of have to. You almost go into a a trance-like state to be able to sustain it. So the challenge for me, which is where I, I also admire Hugo so much, just as the physical person who could do this, standing up along with all the hundreds of other things he was doing at the time, um, the challenge was to stay physically fit, you know, and to be able to sustain the energy because the energy is phenomenal, as you would probably agree. You know, the, the energy of that novel is just phenomenal. Uh, the energy to investigate so many different fields in such detail, which is the thing I love most about it. He doesn't just give you a flower. He gives you the exact genus. You know, he, he'll probably tell you how it grew and, and what, what, you know, how many petals the flower had. It's just that wonderful sense of 
interest in the whole world, you know, the whole visible world as well as the more arcane world behind that and the, the world of people's souls, um, the moral world. Uh, and just that level of energy was very, very hard to sustain. I don't think I could have done it without an extremely helpful and wonderful husband and certainly not without my dog Poppy because that was like the... Uh, the routine in the gym for me, um, you know, going for a walk, sifting things over. It, it is incredible to live with it for three years, three drafts. I do think I deserve a medal for that, but, you know, um, it, it, uh, it, it just filled me with admiration that um, someone could sustain that voice, the original voice, for such a, such a long and involved work. And... Um, Yes, uh, I, I had to leave it, I have to confess also, I had to leave it and go away and do other things. I think I translated another three books while I was doing this, and I've done another three this year since since it came out. But uh, I had to just put it aside and go away from time to time because, uh, you know, it, it was just almost too much from time to time. <laughs> it was just so overwhelming and... And the detail was so detailed. Um, and much as I relished that and loved it, I just had to run away <laughs> and then come back refreshed. When you're translating a work, you're not just translating the words. You're also translating, you know, the, the societal implications, mm. the, 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 the political sensibilities. Could you talk yes. about the, the different levels of translating? First, the language, then, I guess, the society implications mm. and then the political implications yes well this this is one of the great novels in that sense isn't it you get all those things as we've i think agreed you know handed to you on a platter in a in a sense in a way that feels very fresh and modern and relevant to today um and i guess one of the things about a great book which this definitely is uh is that it remains relevant it's and I think if you have that level of truth in the details, both of the social setup that Hugo's writing about, um, about people, uh, about what's happening on the you know historic front, as well as the personal front, if you have that that level of truth and honesty and and sheer detail, which is a tribute to truth, then it's going to remain relevant sort of forever and for instance you know one of the big discursive bits in this that coincides with the actual narrative because Jean Valjean ends up seeking refuge in the convent, Cosette goes to school there etc etc so it's got its point in the narrative but there's a whole quite long bit as you would know about the convent and religion and fundamentalism you know the sort of fundamentalism that sees unmarried women entering convents and wearing hair shirts and, and passing out in the heat and flailing themselves and lying on cold stone to do penance for their sins. All that sort of stuff, which, as we know, happened in convents in the, the Catholic Church and, you know, as a legacy of the Inquisition and all the sort of savagery that Hugo describes. He's really talking about religious fundamentalism and... Um, you know, for me, this is one of the scourges of our age. You've, you've got religious fundamentalism, both in Christianity and, of course, um, in uh, extreme Islamic 
religion and and it just seemed everything he says about that uh, and he says it in a very sympathetic way he understands the impulse he's very compassionate about the the nuns that he describes and about the impulse to that kind of self-denial self-abnegation he's very compassionate about it all but at the same time so lucid so clear-eyed and i just thought you know all the fundamentalists out there in the current world really should be reading this <laughs> Um, he deals with the poverty, he deals with the misery that causes people to be attracted to fundamentalism, and he deals with the, the ravages that fundamentalism um, wreaks, both in, in the individual and in society. So I just sort of thought, you know, that's just taking one topic in inverted commas that happens to be very relevant to us right now, uh, and yet it just seemed absolutely perfect. Could you talk a little bit uh, about the differences or or maybe the the similarities i think uh between the way the book was uh viewed when it came out and the way you think that your new translation will be viewed now that's an interesting question um when it came out um as i mentioned earlier hugo was already seen as a celebrity he was already a hero um he'd been involved in a number of things and his position against the government of the day which was autocratic and cracking down a lot of the liberties that people felt they'd won in the revolution and that napoleon had enshrined in the civil code which is which is still the the, the civil code in france so many things had been won. There was there was a lot more to be done, obviously, but uh, so many things had been won that were whittled away. And Hugo was very vocal. He was a politician. He wasn't just a writer and an artist. He was a politician. He'd been involved. Um, he, he wasn't always successful. He didn't always get elected, but uh, he'd been involved in publishing tracts. He'd written a book about Napoleon III and what a, a miserable little autocrat he was. Napoleon le, le Petit, Napoleon the Little. And so um, he was already known as a champion of the poor and uh, all, all of those things. So I think when it came out, um, people were expecting something they'd like. And it just became um, an overnight bestseller, we'd say. It, it's actually one of the most successful books from the very moment it was published. You know, we're, we're used to thinking of a number of novels as perhaps not being received uh, with open arms at the time they come out and becoming celebrated later. Um, never has a book been more successful in the history of publishing when it was published. Uh, he, Hugo was also a very good businessman, I have to say. He was very canny. He got one of the all-time great publishing contracts, and he was paid a fortune. He made a lot of money from Les Miserables. Um, it was published in Belgium. It couldn't be published in in um, Paris originally, but then the, the Paris edition came out anyway. It was not quite illegal, but, you know, fairly illicit. And uh, so there were people... Who, sorry? That's always good for business. Yes, it's always tremendous for business. So it was a success de scandale as well as a success, you know. Um, so you're absolutely right. That was very good for business. And uh, people were smuggling. He had smuggled copies to the publishers from the Isle of Guernsey. People had carried it over, you know, under their dresses in, in, in the boats going back to Belgium and stuff. And um, he'd smuggled the whole thing bit by bit in installments to the publishers. And um, 
And, of course, uh, the French government was scandalised when it came out, which, of course, as you would say, promoted it even further and everyone was rushing. I think it was virtually sold out overnight. You know, he he's famous for, um, as Adam Gopnik says in his preface, which is terrific, um, he, he describes how... Hugo had sent a big question mark to his publisher. You know, he was he was amazed, and the publisher sent a, an exclamation. Or, or, you know, no, actually, he was he was sort of wondering how things were going, and the publisher sent a, an exclamation mark back. You know, it was just that's all that needed to be said. It was just flying out the the window of the uh, of the booksellers in Belgium, and um, and everyone absolutely loved it. So when you hear people. The the censors the the censors among the uh, translators like Norman Kenny um, say that you know the, it wasn't so well written and all this stuff was irrelevant and and how could people possibly wade wade through it and yet um, people waded through it and and not just you know the the educated people the creme de la creme of society but. Uh, Loads of poor people. Um, I think there were readings for, for the illiterate. You know, anyone who could read on the block in the in the slums was reading it to crowds. You know, it was it was something that everybody just took to heart straight away. Uh, one thing I, I, I wanted to ask is, um, as a, a translator, uh, mm. y- you've finished doing this pretty remarkable piece. Um, do you have look back at that i mean it's all must be kind of an interesting memory for you to <laughs> and, and also your house where you wrote this this house is almost as old as the novel that's that's very interesting and not only that rick the amazing thing was and um i think i was at least halfway through the third and final draft when when this happened but um this house has been in my family since 1937 uh, when my father, who was a countryman, came down with his mother to live in the big smoke of Sydney, you know, and he bought the house for five hundred pounds, you know, and uh, <laughs> and so it, it had stayed in the family. And uh, I'd been living in Paris, and I'd been living in Hong Kong, and when I came back to Sydney. Um, we decided to keep the house, and uh, we we had the deeds, you know, these wonderful original title deeds lodged with our lawyer in town. And at some stage when I was in the middle of the third draft, as I say, the lawyer, who's a, a family friend, rang to say that he was shutting up shop, retiring to Newcastle, and would we like to come and collect the deeds of the house? And I'm so glad we did, because when we actually looked at these deeds, which I'd never looked at, you know, this is something that... Uh, my father had had and, uh, you know, it was no, of no particular interest to me at the time. When we looked at these magnificent title deeds sort of written in, in pen and ink, and the most beautiful, you know, sort of writing, um, we discovered, I knew already that the house was built in 1869. It's a sandstone cottage. And... Um, but what we discovered was that the first person who who lived here, who perhaps had had it built, I don't know, but certainly the first person who lived here was a woman called Marie Paul, and she had come here in 1869 straight from Saint Elier in the Isle of Jersey, where Hugo went in 1855 when he first went into exile after a few weeks in Belgium, and. I realized that you know, if this woman was old enough to be out here then in 1869, seven years after Les Miserables came out, it's very likely that she was around. 
and possibly in the crowd when Hugo came to the Isle of Jersey in 1855 and there was a whole huge crowd surrounding the ship because even then he was absolutely famous everywhere in the world, you know. And so this huge doting crowd came to greet him and welcome him to the Jersey Isles. And I just thought it was fantastic that somehow, you know, this connection had come down... And here I was, sitting in my little cottage in Sydney, you know, hammering away at the computer. Um, and, and there was this connection with Marie-Paul and Saint-Elier and Hugo. And um, so that's why I joked in the preface about channeling Hugo, because one of the things that Hugo was famous for when he landed in the Channel Islands, and in this he was very much a man of his day, because um, spiritualism and all those sort of strange sects sprang out of the mid-19th century, possibly as a response to the industrialization that was well underway and that was changing society forever, even in France, but particularly in England, and the Channel Islands were English. And um, Hugo very much got into seances and talking to the spirits of the dead, and he apparently took this extremely seriously, and he would write down what the dead said to him, and they often said what a great writer he was, you know, <laughs> and other things. <laughs> and uh, they said all sorts of interesting things, and I just thought, Hugo, you know, if you, if you can see this, I think you'd be very happy. <laughs> and there was also, of course, uh, the obvious connection with James Cook, you know, and it's no accident that the books that poor old uh, Monsieur Madeleine retrieves of all of all his library, you know, when Jean Valjean becomes a success and becomes the mayor of Montreuil-sur-Mer, he has a fabulous library. And when he becomes Jean Valjean again, when he hands himself in to save another man's neck, he, um, he only takes a few little things with him in his suitcase. And he takes the clothes that Cosette wore when he first met her, when she was a girl, and he rescued her from the Thenardiers. And he takes one book, and that one book is The Voyages of Captain Cook. And, of course, without Captain James Cook, um, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> we, we wouldn't be talking now between Sydney and Santa Cruz. And um, I like that connection as well. And I, I thought, good, an Australian is doing this. It seems right. <laughs> I'm not the only one, um, and I'm, I feel rather guilty about this because I... I just can't remember his name for the moment. I do know it, but uh, there is another Australian who has translated this, uh, and not all that long ago. Um, though it's it's not uh, a translation I've seen, but it's not the first time. <laughs> We've been speaking with Julie Rose. She just recently translated Victor Hugo's Les Misérables. Thank you for joining me, Julie. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>